0: Hey everybody this is Chuck Marone. Uh before we start today, just want to give you a quick update on the book. I, I gotta tell you, my publisher is really thrilled. You guys are coming through. Uh the pre-sale numbers are really strong and uh this book is <laughs> doing really well. They 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 told me that uh well I, I'm not gonna tell you everything they said, but let's just say they're really, really happy. Um if you haven't got a copy yet go out and uh go to where you get book sale. Uh, You can get it pretty much anywhere they sell books. You can get your order in. Um, I'm telling you, the more momentum we get now, uh, this is causing them and then other organizations like Amazon and some of the distribution houses to put more uh, money and effort into promoting the book and getting it out in front of people. So I just want to say thank you. Everything you've done uh, to get the book, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, It's working. Keep going. Thank you so much. We're getting this message out and like the momentum is huge. So just want to say thank you for all you've done. Uh, Take care. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Uh, A a few weeks ago, I was interviewed uh, by a reporter named Ben Westhoff, and he wanted to talk about Ferguson. And I got to tell you, I've had quite a few reporters over the years call me and and want to chat about Ferguson. And I don't know. It's one of these really difficult subjects to talk about. And, And I'm certainly not the expert in any way. Um, But I took the call and we had a really nice conversation. And then the article came out. Uh, The article is in The Verge. Uh, The title of it is called, uh, (laughs) let me scroll up to the top where I've got it. Ferguson, five years later, the killing of Michael Brown sparked protests against police brutality, but the city faces new insidious problems. And this is, bar none, the best article I've read on kind of the the aftermath of the Ferguson uh, conflict uh, that I've that I've ever read, it's it's absolutely fantastic. We're going to link to it in the show notes. But I asked uh, Ben if he would be willing to come on and chat about Ferguson, this article, and other things, and he gracefully agreed. So Ben Westhoff, uh, award-winning journalist uh, out of the St. Louis area, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast.
1: Thanks, Chuck, and thanks for having me. I've been a fan of Strong Towns, and uh, I, it was great talking to you. And yeah, you, your ideas really informed that story. So, so thank you for that. that.
0: That's really remarkable to me. And, and I mean, I, I've looked a little bit after the story came out uh, into your background, and you've written some amazing books. You've received a lot of uh, awards. Uh, you've got a book coming out here in the next few days uh, about fentanyl. Uh, how Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the opoid, Opioid Epidemic. T- tell us a little bit about your background as a journalist and uh, some of the things that have have driven you or, or given you passion in your work.
1: Well, I went to college in St. Louis here, and I became interested in the city's hip-hop scene. And I wrote about music for a long time, but but music was always kind of informed by these like urban stories, these sort of like journalistically strong uh, profiles and sort of bigger picture stories. And so I say now that I write about culture, drugs and poverty. And I think all of these things go together in a in a lot of ways. And so I wrote about L.A. gangster rap in the 80s and 90s, a book called Original Gangsters about Tupac and NWA. And then, you know, it wasn't as unnatural a segue as it might sound into this new book about fentanyl, because it really is an urban epidemic in a lot of ways. It's the third wave of the opioid epidemic. And so you heard a lot about prescription painkills being abused by middle class white people. And that's definitely still happening. Uh, and then the second wave was heroin you know, people, their prescriptions ran out, people turned to street heroin, you know, law abiding citizens. And now, and now, though, it's almost impossible to find pure heroin in most places. It's, it's almost all cut with fentanyl. And in places like St. Louis, it's been a particular scourge. And so this, that's kind of my very large area of interest that goes back to these same sort of themes. I, I,
0: f- I found it a little bit shocking, uh, and, and we didn't get a chance to elaborate on it. I'd like you to, to talk about it a little bit now, if you would. You actually said that the inspiration for digging into this Ferguson piece, it, it kind of ties into a, a book that you're going to start working on now uh, after the, the release of, of the current one, uh, that being a, about a, a friend you had, uh, it, who was murdered? Can you? Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Because I, I, I kind of felt like that was an important setup to this deeper conversation about Ferguson.
1: Yeah, in 2005, I was paired with a little brother in the Big Brother Big Sisters program, and his name was Jarrell Cleveland, and we were together for 11 years here in St. Louis until he was murdered in uh 2016 and his family lived in ferguson at the time and a lot of these the characters in this story for the verge about ferguson are his siblings and i quote his dad too and so since Jarrell was murdered three years ago i've been trying to find out how it happened the case is still unsolved as so many of these cases are when you know young black men are killed they're very rarely solved and i'm trying to find out what happened you know and and at the same time i'm learning a lot about just the social fabric of ferguson and as relates to the strong town's message and this story how ferguson came to be how it how it is now and it used to be just a kind of mostly white bedroom community. And how did it go from there to a place that now has a really high crime rate, has all these, you know, this driving while black inc- incidences of unfair policing, Michael Brown's killing, you know, how did how did we get from here to there? And so that's Part of the question I'm trying to answer.
0: So you start this story with a, a, a boy named Jovan or a young man named Jovan Cleveland. That's, that's Jarrell's brother.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay. Fascinating. Um, his story is gripping because here's, uh, I, I, I think, and I'm, I'm guessing this is why you chose him. seems like the, the prototypical young man, uh, trying to make his way in a, a difficult place, uh, you talk about him trying to cross the the famous West Florissant Street uh, and go to where the uh, the old uh, the, the little marketplace that was part of the kind of ground zero for the attacks and the the protests uh, and the new the new uh, community center that is there. Can you can you talk a little bit about that experience? And do you I mean do you think that that's a typical experience in that neighborhood?
1: Yeah, the West Florissant Avenue corridor is just sort of the most ugly, sort of unsightly bit of street. Um, That's where the protests and the rioting and the looting took place after Michael Brown's killing. And, you know, everybody saw those images on the news of the buildings being burned down, the McDonald's, the Quick Trip gas station, all of that. But then I don't think people realize that the five biggest low income housing projects in Ferguson are all pretty much right there. And so this is a strip that is the lifeline for people who live there, including Jovan Cleveland. And so there's, you know, there's been so much money poured into this area, something like $65 million or more. And yet this, this corridor is just so ugly. It's full of, you know, predatory loan places, it doesn't have any legitimate businesses that sustain employment and keep money in the community, and that's sort of the the terrain for so many people in this area. You, you I'm going
0: to quote from the article here. You said, uh, for example, today he, uh, Jovan. Did you say Jovan? Jovan. I'm a
1: Jovan. Yeah. Jovan.
0: Okay. Um, as a Minnesotan, I would want to lengthen out that a. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jovan attempts to cross West Florescent Avenue, the area's major thoroughfare. He is nearly crushed after a car traveling between 45 to 50 miles an hour cruises through a red light behind a fire truck flashing its lights. And then he says, I'm, I'm just glad I wasn't looking down at my phone. Uh, one of the things that struck me, and, and I think this is, you know, uh, as limited as our contribution here at Strong Towns was to th- this overall, uh, you know, kind of national dialogue that began or or really grew after Ferguson. Um, you know, the limited observation that we had was that this is not a place designed for the people who live there. Um, you, you've been there, you've experienced it in a more intimate way than I have. Um, how true is that statement?
1: Yeah, it's completely true. I mean, it's it's harrowing just to even to drive down that street can be a little scary. You know, there's so many lanes. People are going by so fast. And then to walk is just like, you know, you really have to keep your eye out because the sidewalks are so narrow. They're not ADA compliant. There's so few crosswalks that you often have to try to cross through that all that mess of traffic. It's just parking lots everywhere, concrete. Um, I've seen people try to bike down that street, but it's certainly not something I would do.
0: How do you think? Because the thing that I've struggled with trying to understand, and and you put a lot more meat on this bones than than I have have ever been aware of in this article. But you you talk a little bit about the the other side of Ferguson. Um, I think you talk about the, the 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 kind of middle class running their five Ks and ten Ks, going to Starbucks. Um, you know, there's a very affluent part of Ferguson. Um, how how did it happen uh, that this part became so kind of what I would just say is like structurally disconnected from the people who actually live, you know, the humans who inhabit this place? Uh, what 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 would you what would you point to what kind of things would you say got us to this point?
1: I think with as in a lot of cases like this it was the when the outer belt came in that had a lot to do with it and now what was this traditional sort of commercial street became more of a connecting point away from people to get from one city to another you know to get to the outer belt. And that was a big part of it. You know, um, the the more affluent part of Ferguson poured a ton of money not that long ago into trying to make their downtown area more walkable, more pedestrian friendly, more bringing the businesses closer t- to the front of the sidewalk, things like that, and have had a lot of success, actually. If you If you go into that area, it's really cute. And it is diverse and all sorts of, you know, small businesses operate out of there. So I, I think the idea, you know, that people want to try to replicate that for West Florissant Avenue, but I'm afraid it's just a whole different beast because there's so much traffic. And I think the the powers that be are just low, you know, like like you said in the article, they're concerned with traffic first and foremost. And I think they're too scared to try to imagine a life where the, you know, people couldn't drive as fast as they can now.
0: Help me though with this. Cause I, 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 I feel like it's easy for me to say that, right? Cause I'm, you know, part activist, part engineer planner. I, I look at this and I'm like, they're just obsessed with traffic. What's going on. Th- there was a riot here. People died. There was, uh, you know, buildings burned down. Look, what's the wake up call that needs to happen in a place like this to actually put a dent like at, at what point do you become less afraid of the angry driver and more afraid of the, you know, the person who's willing to, to burn the building down because they're just fed up with what they're, you know, the bad hand they're being dealt.
1: I don't think most people put make that connection. You know what I mean? I think when you ask people what they need in Ferguson, they say jobs and they say, you know, they want the, um, the police brutality the the racist police department to be reformed, things like that, but I don't think a lot of people put these basic structural problems into the mix
0: yeah I, we we noted in our work that we did that in the year Michael Brown was killed, the city uh spent eight hundred thousand dollars on interest on their debt and only twenty five thousand on sidewalk maintenance. And it, it just, it, it seems to me like with that kind of imbalance, there's no doubt that you would walk in the street, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I the, the sidewalks are of course going to be in disrepair. You can't even repair a block of sidewalk for that much money, let alone the miles and miles of stuff they have. Is, is this at all part of the, let me, let me say it this way. It, it feels like there's a happy, almost, uh, you know, what Chris Arnotti would call like a front row conversation going on. Um, you know, the, the the people who have all the best of intentions and want to do right and want to do, you know, good for people. Um, look at things like, let's hold a 5K and let's make the downtown cute and let's put, you know, $37 million into making West Floris on a complete street. And it fits into like a really happy paradigm um, where we can all kind of feel good about ourselves. But when you start this article with Joven and and his you know just going about his day it seems like there's a massive disconnect between that real that lived reality and what the kind of official comfortable albeit well-intentioned i guess i'm not questioning the intentions um narrative that's taking place am i am i reading too much into it or are are you seeing that kind of thing
1: no i i agree with what you're saying i think in st louis Part of the issue is that there's always been this city county divide, and only about 300,000 people live in the city of St. Louis, whereas the county has closer to 3 million, or, or excuse me, the rest of the metro area has closer to 3 million. And so um, people still think of the suburbs as this kind of bright, happy place in a lot of ways. But the area where Ferguson is is called North County. And there's more poverty, you know, more people living in poverty there than there are in St. Louis City now or or relatively similar amounts. It's been this sort of dramatic change in recent decades, and it's happening so fast that I don't think people know what to be done. It's sort of like um, it's it's you know, people are still sort of focused on the city and, and these revitalization projects but meanwhile, St. Louis is, looks more and more like a ghost town, and it seems like more efforts have to be focused on a lot of these entering suburbs. You mentioned
0: the push for jobs, and I see that too in the conversation. It seems, though, like a lot of the, uh, the prescription for jobs is, you know, how do we get the Starbucks to come in and open up? Or how do we get the, the McDonald's to uh, put in another location or how do we get, you know, the, the next big box store in? Um, how are these jobs correlated or not to the needs of people who live, you know, near West Florissant in this neighborhood where Michael Brown was killed?
1: The Washington Post did a survey of this and they found out where all the people working at this Starbucks lived and none of them lived in this low income area where Jovan lives. And there's a sense there's basically a lot of these places are near the outer belt. A lot of these restaurants and big box stores and Starbucks and whatnot, where those have gone in. And for decades now in St. Louis, they've been using tax increment financing to try to help these blighted areas. And as you have documented on your site, it just seems to go wrong so often. And in Ferguson, it was especially problematic. And, you know, the the, the Sam's Club and the Home Depot and the Walmart, these aren't places where that are offering a lot of employment to these people who live in, in these areas. And, and part of the issue is transportation, you know, it's way too far to walk. The public transportation is very dodgy and a lot of these residents don't have cars. So, you know, you don't have to do any complicated math to figure out what's happening. Am I,
0: it's, you, you have in the article the, the community empowerment center, and there's a, there's a quote in here. I, I can't find it, in, but it was something along the lines of, you know, right away when, when this happened, uh, there were all kinds of people who rushed in and said, we want to help. And I think, you, I think someone, you even quoted someone as saying it was pillow talk, right? Like it was like, hey, I, I want to, you know, I'm going to be here forever. And now yeah. five years later, they're, they're gone. They're gone. And there's just a couple of organizations left. Um, and those organizations are kind of doing triage on the day-to-day stuff how have we not seen structural changes here? How, How is it that we don't have people out doing what you just did, which is walk along with someone and kind of try to understand why this environment is not working for them?
1: Well, there are some organizations doing great work. Um, the, the urban league and, um, is, for example, is, um, building on some of the sites that were destroyed in the Ferguson unrest and are more community focused. They're working on uh, business incubators, things like that. And Emerson Electric is the big Fortune 500 company that's, that's right there on that strip. And they've donated over $16 million. There's been a lot of corporate giving. There's um, There's been other Local organizations who are very much still in the game. But the, you know, what you're saying, the systemic change is the problem. And part of that has to do with Missouri law that prohibits raising any sort of taxes, property taxes, for the sake of benefiting the city. And so you get strange situations where a place like Emerson Electric, which is one of the biggest c- companies in the nation. Only donates, I think it was by one estimate, $86,000 in its taxes go to Ferguson every year. That's it. That was as of 2013. Right. And so, you know, it, it's great that they gave $16 million, but like if they're not contributing their property taxes, then it's not going to last.
0: Right. Yeah. It's not really a stable base uh, when you've tiffed away or, or what have you uh, that much. It, it, I'm going to read something from your article um, because I thought it was very powerful. And I, I think it goes against what those of us not, you know, many of us who are not close to this geographically uh, would assume maybe the opposite. You said, uh, even with the groundswell of activism, the reforms and the influx of redevelopment dollars, life is not better for low income and black Ferguson residents five years after Michael Brown's death. In fact, by a number of measures, including murder rate, poverty rate, and small business revenue, it's worse. And the lack of progress can be seen most vividly on and around West Florissant Avenue. Uh, That's a powerful statement, particularly I I think when a lot of us, and I'm I'm including me in this, although maybe I'm more cynical than than others, I think a lot of us would um, assume that with all the attention given All the uh, you know, all all, just basically all the politicians that went there, all the stuff that this would not be the case. How is this possibly the case?
1: It really is hard to understand. It's it's such a complicated problem. It's the kind of thing where I I think there are some solutions, and you know I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I really do think that a lot of the things you've advocated for are the best approach. And, you know, I've driven around the area. I've walked around um, that area and other parts of North St. Louis, North St. Louis County. And there are so many people with strong entrepreneurial spirits. And you see them all over the place selling goods out of the back of their cars, you know, even like toilet paper and um, household goods. There often aren't, aren't grocery stores or, convenience stores anywhere nearby there's um people who operate home tattoo parlors out of their houses um you know there's people who have ideas to start their own restaurants you know things like that but they lack the startup capital and as i mentioned in the story there's all this crazy red tape on west floriston avenue for example It, it winds through three different municipalities this corridor and so I quote someone in the story saying that the zoning ordinances are literally different from one side of the street to the other. And I think, you know, bringing in a Starbucks like you said is just the wrong top-down approach. It's more beneficial would be empowering these people who already want to start businesses within the community to be able to do that and and you gave a bunch of good ideas on how that can be done. Let me, let me be devil's
0: advocate for a minute um, because I, I think that there are two um, narratives that would be imposed on a place like this from people on the outside. And the first one is this one you've been, uh, you know, hinting at just now. Uh, so let me be devil's advocate and say, you know, the people of this neighborhood, uh, the people in, in Ferguson, especially in these poor neighborhoods just lack the, capacity or the motivation or the entrepreneurial spirit to start businesses and and, and do the things that you would need to, to make it uh, work and flourish? How, how, how would you, as someone who knows this neighborhood, respond to that type of insinuation?
1: Well, I don't think there's any reason to think that at all. I mean, um, we have a motto in the STL, which is you can't spell hustle without the stl and um you know you like i said you see people everywhere um just trying to make a dollar and finding really creative like smart ways to do it and if if someone can do this and have to be like dodging in some cases dodging the police you know worrying about getting shut down because they're operating with a license without a license i mean if people are willing to Take care, you know, if they can succeed, even with these type of, you know, uh, difficulties, imagine what they could do if they were above board.
0: Let me give you the other, uh, I think, critique that would be lobbed from the outside. And by the way, I I agree with you. I've I've found, uh, you know, for example, South Memphis, one of the poorest neighborhoods I've ever been in. The, the percentage of entrepreneurial people in that neighborhood is so high compared to your, your standard suburban, uh, middle-class suburb. It, it just off the charts. These people do hustle. They, they work incredibly hard. Um, let me give you the other critique that I hear. And I actually heard this yesterday when I was uh, speaking in Alabama, someone, when I was talking about making investments in, in underserved neighborhoods, uh, spoke up and said, well, you know, that's all great, Chuck, but these people, and and you can take that wherever you want, um, these people don't have pride of ownership, pride of place. They're largely renters. Uh, they don't really care about the neighborhood. Um, talk about that, because I, I, I could talk about it for a long time, but I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of weigh in on um, the perspective that maybe the people who live in neighborhoods like this are just not quite have the same, you know, character makeup as the rest of us do.
1: Well, I mean, it sounds like racism, um, you know, but I think anyone who spends any time in these communities, you know, take Florissant, uh, take Ferguson, for example. I mean, you really do see just beautiful areas. People really care about their, their spots. Um, Jarrell's family, and Jovan's family came to Ferguson in, uh, 2006. And so, you know, that's 13 years they've been living in the same house as dad. They really care about their block. And, um, and, you know, it's, everyone wants the same thing. They want safe streets, you know, they want, um, to feel, you know, they want the police to care. That's a whole, that's a whole other it, issue, but you know, they want good schools. And um to think that, you know, African American families were any different is is pretty silly.
0: Yeah. Uh I, I, I want to ask you a little bit about the police uh situation. And and particularly because you, you talk about a little bit in the article, you know, the, the phenomenon of driving while black, the idea that you get caught in these kind of predatory fees uh, cycles we we 've all heard the stories or I should have heard the stories of people who uh you know got got you can't you can 't have a job uh and unless you can drive to it uh you don 't make enough money to pay the fee they take away your license uh then you got a you know tough decision to make do you drive without a license uh do you lose your job? Talk a little bit about the the reforms that have happened. Uh, To to deal with some of this and maybe some of the impact of that, you know, if it's been positive or or negative or what?
1: Well, after Michael Brown's death, the Justice Department released this pretty scathing report about how not just Ferguson, but all sorts of the municipalities that are north of St. Louis um, make their budgets by all these kind of unfair fines and fees and it's things like driving while black. And and these are fees that if you don't pay them, you can literally go to jail. And so it's kind of a modern day debtor's prison, a lot of this stuff. Um, since then, Ferguson, to its credit, has really made a lot of reforms. And it's, there was actually a state law, too, that prohibited these municipalities from collecting a certain percentage of their of their budget through these type of fees. And so that has been something positive that is, has happened in recent years. And, you know, you can see some of the evidence on the ground, too, that uh, Jovan told me that he used to get harassed by the police, but he says he, it hasn't happened recently. And the new Ferguson police chief, the one now and the one before, is, is black, and they've had a lot better minority hiring. And so in that regard, you know, the, the one caveat, I guess, is that to make up enough revenue for their budget, they raise the sales tax, and that is a you know a regressive tax as well. So, it's it's not it's not perfect. Certainly,
0: you're a journalist, and a big part of being a journalist is is just reporting on facts as you see them. Uh, that's a little bit different than what I do, which I, I think there's an expectation that when I give a critique of a situation that I have answers or solutions or at least ideas that that we could try to make things better. I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot and ask you to solve any of these problems because I, I don't think you have to do that in order to do good journalism the way you've done it here, which I, I think is telling a really compelling story. But But I do want to, before we're done just give you an opportunity to say you know is there something that is not being done out there that should be is there something that you think would would make a difference or or would be an improvement is there something that we're doing that we should stop if you were going to give advice to the city of ferguson or the st louis region or residents in this area uh, what what advice if any would that be
1: I think the first thing that needs to be reformed is the way that they collect property taxes and not just Ferguson and St. Louis, but all over the state of Missouri. And there are these sort of unnatural caps that really limit how, how a city can build its budget through its big companies and corporations rather than nickel and diming its own citizens to death. And I think that would be an important first step. I also think that, like I said, it, you have to create an environment where it's more easy to be entrepreneurial. And, you know, you're more of an expert on that than I am, but I would say empowering potential small business owners is critical also. You know, like, like we've said, they've come a long way in terms of um, making the police force more accountable to the citizens, but, you know, they still haven't met all of their requirements from the consent decree following the justice department report. So I, th- I think, you know, like getting more Starbucks and home depots and all that, I think we can sort of relax about that and instead try to basically empower the people of Ferguson.
0: Sure. Um, You've got a book coming out September 3rd. This is going to run, uh, around that time. So it might run on the exact day when your book comes out. Uh, tell us a little bit about your new book and, and would you want to come on? I haven't got a copy of it, but I I think I might get one now.
1: And, uh, (laughs) I'd,
0: I'd love to chat with you about it. This is a, a, a fascinating topic.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, um, fentanyl now is killing more people than any drug on an annual basis in American history. And I wanted to find out where it came from. And I went to China, I infiltrated a pair of synthetic drug operations there. And almost all, you know, we think of places like Afghanistan and Mexico as supplying our drugs, but China is increasingly the one doing it. Trump just went off on a tweet storm about this today. But, um, you know, so so I spent a lot of time exploring the darknet side. You know, the dealers who are selling this stuff, but I also spent time on the streets and and in St. Louis, and went to this old abandoned Magic Chef factory. There was this company, Magic Chef, that made stoves, um, which had this like half million square foot factory that's completely abandoned, and now it's a shooting gallery. Where people shoot up heroin and fentanyl, and and I went there with a, a former dealer, and he also showed me, you know, the 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 place where he sold drugs. I spoke with a lot of addicted users, and found out how this sort of works on a, you know, a transactional basis. So it was kind of an exploration of every ladder, of the the drug trade, so.
0: I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to discredit you for for our audience. I don't think this will. But I, you're from Minnesota. <laughs> how does a <laughs> yeah that's right How does a guy from Minnesota wind up writing books about uh, hip hop, rap, and now fentanyl? This is a you're making me feel a little cooler than I otherwise would be. Um, how does this happen?
1: Well, first of all, Minnesota has an amazing music history true as I hope as I hope everyone knows <laughs> Bob Dylan from, from da- Bob Dylan and Prince, the replacements, you know, atmosphere, I could go on and on. But, um, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's just always been about the stories and, and the journalism, you know, I mean, I never wanted to be one of those music critics who twiddled my thumbs and, uh, discussed, uh, you know, what uh, used a bunch of terms that the listening audience didn't understand. But, um, I've, you know, like when I came here for college, that was around the time Nelly and all these, uh, St. Louis rappers were blowing up. And I, I wanted to learn about that scene and I wanted to, you know, know the real stories and that's kind of what's pushed me along ever since.
0: Yeah. And you're not you're not coming back to Minnesota though. You're you're a St. Louis person now.
1: The way, I'm just too much of a wimp. The weather is <laughs> I just can't handle it anymore. Oh I don't man. Know what's
0: wrong with me. Uh okay, last question. Um right now this year, uh the St. Louis Cardinals not doing so good. The Minnesota Twins right up there uh, having like one of the greatest seasons of all time. Uh you 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 grew up, I'm assuming, a Twins fan or in Twins country. <laughs> Had where are your allegiances? Have they, have, have that gotten stripped out of you now or you're not oh, a baseball man. fan? This is,
1: this is easily the, the hard, toughest question <laughs> I've ever had asked for me. This is man. You're really putting me on the spot with this, but I have to admit that I have gone over to the Cardinals. Um, you know, I, I will root, trust me. I, the twins season is amazing and I will root for them all the way till the world series. Mm-hmm. Um, until unless they happen to be playing the cardinals that's the only I, that's the only I, way I'd have to back down. I'm
0: 46 years old. You younger or older than me?
1: I'm a little I'm a little younger, but I remember 87 and 91 very vividly. Okay, that was
0: going to be my question. If you remember 80 cuz I remember that entire Cardinals team in 87 and I liked them. I mean, Vince Coleman, that was a that was a fun squad. Um, you know, Twins beat them in 7. And uh, I'm happy for them that they've won in subsequent years. And we, you know, had the '91, but it's been a long drought. But I, I, I can respect a Cardinals fan. That's a team with a lot of history, and uh, you know, a really great franchise, no doubt.
1: Yeah, and that that makes it a little easier. It feels kind of lame, though. It's like when someone moves to New York and becomes a Yankees fan. It's like, all right, that's yeah. I feel a little sheepish about it. A, you know, a real die in the world Twins fan. If they do something this year and it looks like they well could, I mean, that's going to be a good feeling. Yeah,
0: no doubt. Yeah, I I have uh, my two daughters. Um, ever since they were little, uh, we don't hate, we have a saying in our family, we don't hate anyone in our family except the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to hate the Yankees, nobody else. Uh, so Ben, uh, ben Westoff, thanks for taking the time, not only to to join us today, but to put the effort into writing this piece uh, is absolutely fantastic, and I, I hope that our entire audience will take the time to read it because you really, I, I think more than any other article I've I've read on this topic, get to the essence of I, I think the the problem or the the challenges that we face not only in Ferguson but in suburbs with similar struggles all over the country. So thanks so much for joining us, and and good luck on your new book. I, I want to have you back on when I when I read it, and uh, we'll chat some more.
1: Well, thanks Chuck and, and good luck with your book too. I want to read that as well. That sounds really good. Well,
0: I will send I've got a couple copies here, so we'll get you a copy. I would love to. I'd love to have you read it. You've certainly uh, put, <laughs> put some of our stuff to very good use, so I'm I'm uh, happy to to double down on this relationship. Thanks, Ben.
1: Okay, awesome. Thanks, Chuck.
0: Take care. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care.
1: Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill.
0: That's the story.
1: Oh, they know that America's one big pothole right now. Oh,
0: la, la. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet
1: solutions. Chuck Moron, this has been fascinating.